0: Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. The way we shop changed dramatically during the pandemic, but how many of the changes we saw actually proved sticky? Are we still in love with home baking? Are we still scratch cooking? Are we still making our own lunches? Are we still buying online? And did we cut back on eating meat? And if so, why? These are the kinds of questions that Nathan Ward is in the business of answering. Nathan is Business Unit Director at Cantal, and he's focused specifically on understanding the why behind shopper trends. So he doesn't just look at the sales figures, he looks at the consumer behind those figures and what's driving the behaviour. Nathan is my guest on The Pick list this week, and we had a really interesting and wide-ranging conversation about what's been happening with shopper behaviour since lockdown, We also talked about the rise of plant-based and meat reduction, more generally. The impact of supply chain disruption and food price inflation, of course, and what to expect from Christmas at a time when shopper behaviour is more polarised than it's been in a long time. So that's coming up in a moment, but first let me bring you up to speed with the big food and grocery retail stories this week. Former Tesco boss Dave Lewis has been appointed by the government to advise on supply chain issues, and help come up with solutions to the current supply chain crisis. It comes as the ONS found that 61% of shoppers have been affected by supply chain issues in some form, either because they've been unable to pick up items on their shopping list, or noticed less variety on shelves, or because they had to go to more than one store to get everything they need. Speaking of supply chain disruption, the Port of Felixstowe, which handles about 40% of containers coming in and out of the UK, has been making headlines this week because of delays caused by a backlog of containers due to the HGV driver shortage. Analysis by Russell Group suggests those delays could affect almost £1.5 billion worth of goods being imported in the UK in the run-up to Christmas. The EU has offered to scrap most checks on British food and drink entering Northern Ireland as part of efforts to resolve the current standoff around the Northern Ireland Brexit protocol. The proposal was broadly welcomed by Northern Irish trade and business leaders. The UK government says it's now reviewing the proposal. Ranjit Singh Baparan, the boss of Two Sisters Food Group, has warned that food is too cheap and the days of the three-pound chicken are over. He said it was time to level with consumers about the need for food prices to go up, and warned that food inflation could hit double digits. We'll actually come back to this story in the interview with Nathan a little later as well. Aldi has announced a new initiative to help fight food waste. It will sell products such as packs of pasta or rice with packaging imperfections at a 30% discount. The initiative will run in all of Aldi's UK stores. Just Eat, the takeaway delivery service, has hit a major milestone in the UK. It's now had more than 1 billion orders here. In the most recent three-month period to the end of September, the number of orders it processed in the UK was up 51% year-on-year. The latest Kantar grocery market figures were also out this week. They showed shoppers making fewer trips to supermarkets in a bid to save fuel in the most recent data period. Instead, online grocery shopping was on the rise once again after seven months of decline. Kantar also revealed that grocery prices were up 1.7% on a like-for-like basis in the past four weeks. Soil Association Certification has signed up to Amazon's Climate Pledge-friendly initiative, That is an initiative designed to make it easier for consumers to identify sustainable products when shopping on Amazon. As a result of the partnership, any Soil Association certified products sold through Amazon can now carry a Climate Pledge friendly badge. And finally, Gary Barlow of Take That fame is moving into the wine business. The singer has launched a range of organic wines from Spain in partnership with Benchmark Drinks. The range is called Gary Barlow Organic. It costs £8 a bottle and has secured listings with Morrison's. Those are the big food and grocery retail headlines this week. You can find links to all the stories I mentioned in the show notes and also on Picklist.co.uk. And now, here's my conversation with Nathan Ward. Nathan, welcome to the Picklist. Thank you for being my guest.
1: Oh, thanks. It's great to be here.
0: Now you are business unit director at Kantar, which many listeners will of course be very familiar with, but you head up a specific part of Canta, which people may not know quite so much about, which is the usage foods service. What yes. is that and how is it different to the <laughs> world panel part? Lots of people will know.
1: The main difference is we, we work on the consumer. So we're all about the occasion people eat at and, and what they're doing with their food, why they're eating it. Who they're eating it with, when they're eating it, whether it's in home, out of home, whether it's something they prepared at home and taken out. So it's a whole consumer view that really rounds the picture to the rest of the World Panel data. So it's giving the why behind the what's happening.
0: Got it. Because with World Panel, just for a little bit of context there, that's take home grocery, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas you are looking at any food and drink consumed inside or outside the home.
1: Yes, so we look at it in the whole 360 side of things. Most of the things we report on are in-home, but we also have an out-of-home element to it as well where we can pick up food service uh, and, and people eating out, which uh, for the last 18 months hasn't been so relevant, but it's now.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, and I know you are very knowledgeable about the meat sector. <laughs> Is that a sector that you have focused on specifically throughout your career or are you actually working across a whole number of different sectors?
1: I. I I did used to head up a team that was um, solely focused on meat, fish and poultry. So I headed that up for about six years. So I I have a bit of knowledge in that area. Um, The usage food side of things is a much more general role across all food and drink, really. So we have a, a, a range of clients from government agencies all the way through to huge branded suppliers.
0: Fantastic. And I think we'll um, make the most of that breadth Mm -hmm. of perspective that you have, although we'll drag you a little bit to a few meaty things as well. (laughs) Um, Are you, I mean, I know that you have been at Cantor for, I think, more than 20 years. Um, Are you one of those people now who are an absolute nightmare to go grocery shopping with? People like me, in other words, who stop constantly, want to look at all the products, all the merchandising, all the prices, or are you still capable of doing a, a halfway normal shop?
1: I'd like to say I was capable of doing normal shop. I do find myself walking down aisles I, I have no need to be in, just to see what's in there, see what's happening, see what's different. Um, so yeah, I, I, I quite enjoy going grocery shopping. It's it's always a pleasure. You get to see different things, and, and quite often you get to see MPD that you've talked about with people or things that you've you've heard in the pipeline. So it's, it's really good to see almost the fruits of the labour of the people you work with and the people we we support.
0: Absolutely. Now, we've got some really topical articles and issues to talk about. Before we do that, tell me just a little bit about your reading habits. How do you keep up to date on the latest industry trends? Which publications do you tend to read?
1: Yeah, I I have a lot of uh, publications coming to me. Um, uh, Over the years, I've worked in lots of different areas and uh, you get subscriptions to lots of things. So I, I, I suppose the... The big stock app for me, for everyone, is always the grocer. It's in my daily inbox all the time. Um, But I do a lot of industry-specific things. So from the the, the days of working in meat, uh, I see meat and food management all the time. Um, I used to work on alcohol, so I actually see quite a lot of the morning advertiser. Um, And and then all the broadsheets, so quite often the Guardian Independent have quite topical things on this and um, particularly at the moment a lot of things we talk about are about plant-based about meat-free and we're going to talk about that in a minute and and those are really strong areas for those publications as well
0: and which types of stories other than the sort of obvious plant-based stuff as you say that that we'll get to talk about as well what types of stories tend to capture your attention at the moment what type of headline makes you go oh i must pay attention to that
1: I think anything for me about people's lives is everything we do in, in my job is looking at what people are doing. So it, it's interesting to read stories that even seem fairly unconnected to the day to day. So li- listening to how people are working differently, how people are changing habits in transport, in heating their homes whether things are costing more to them all those stories are really interesting to provide context to what we see going on in our lives because nothing's really in isolation uh, a, a great example of that is when you look at something like um, inflation or a petrol crisis which tangentially should uh, actually drive things but it has quite a huge impact on people's perception of markets and what they need to do and um as we've seen over the last year a little bit of a change in perception can drive a huge change in shopping habits. Um, We've seen more panic buying than I've seen in the rest of my 20 years working for World Panel in the space of 18 months. And you see people buying into things that they wouldn't buy before just just because they're nervous of what's coming in and what the news is saying to them. So it's interesting to see people's broader context and, really anything that affects people on a day-to-day basis grabs my attention to see what, what effect that could have on the things I do and the things everyone does.
0: Really interested in what you were saying about just how different behaviour has been over the past 18 months. I think you said you know, more mm. panic buying than, than you've seen in the, in the previous 20 years. What was the sort of standout moment um, of a behaviour change or a change in the way people consumed or bought food that mm. really took you by surprise that was a bit unexpected?
1: I wouldn't say anything was hugely unexpected. Uh, The stockpiling of toilet paper was, the levels of that was unexpected, but um, uh, understandable. I, I think some of the more interesting things we've seen have been things that have been on the way for a long time, but in lockdown, massively increased. So things like shopping online, and I suppose the interesting things for us is it's Are people going to stick with those habits or now things are opening up, go back to where they were? And it's an interesting conundrum for suppliers uh, as well as market research agencies to what that means for them and how they go about their lives. I think the biggest change we saw in the usage data I work with was people being in home a lot more. Uh, It meant that you had different meals to cook, different things to do. Uh, We've seen a massive rise in lunch occasions, which... It's fairly obvious if you're at home five days a week, you're going to be having a lot more meals at home. Um, but we've seen that happen and, and how that has changed over time. But also things like the evening meal where people were really excited at first. There was a lot more scratch cooking, people getting involved in things. And then gradually, over time we've seen that wear out, and a bit of cooking fatigue coming through. And now, on our data, we're seeing a lot of convenience and practicality really driving those evening occasions again.
0: It's so interesting, isn't it? Because I feel like something similar has happened on food waste, um, where again, in the early days of the pandemic, there was lots of really encouraging data or survey results coming through saying people are so much more aware of food waste. They value food more. They're cooking more from scratch. So they're able to actually manage waste and portion sizes much more. And then some of the more recent data that's come through from RAP suggesting that actually we have reverted to quite a few bad habits as we've come out of lockdown as well is that something that you have have seen in in your data that some of those sort of early pandemic trends haven't quite stuck around
1: certainly we, we're seeing trends changing almost on a daily basis at the moment so um the way the data works is it's collected and aggregating comes back so we're always a little behind the trends um, and at the moment, what one of the big things we're looking at is, is almost the big movement back to work since Freedom Day. Mm. How yeah, that's affecting the data. Uh, and I suppose the interesting thing there is it's not really affecting it that much at the moment. We've seen out of home go back to a level below where it was, but increase. We've seen people carrying out again, taking lunch boxes as they're going to the office. But because the move back to work is a lot slower than we expected, we're actually not seeing that huge sea change that perhaps everyone was going uh, to expect from from what we were hearing and what we were seeing. I suppose over time, one of the big things that we have seen with people are there's been some fads and things that people were were into very strongly and are now dropping away. So a great example of that was home baking. Mm -hmm. Um, You couldn't escape a banana bread recipe... (laughs) even if you tried in the first few months of lockdown, we saw huge spikes in that home-baking side of things, and then that's dropped off quite significantly. Um, And I think that's the kind of things we've seen is, although things have changed, people have got back to normal in as many things as they can as quickly as they can. And I think normal has been quite a a sort of aspiration for people. Uh, And we have seen things tend back, but some things, as I say, are staying. So online, for example, is at a level above where it's been before. It's dropped back, but it's still there. Um, Eating at home, still there. We've seen that growth coming through on there. We've also seen things like um, health dropped away quite significantly at the start of the lockdown. People treating themselves, having more unhealthy things. But then we had... Last Christmas, the healthiest Christmas we've had in five years, in terms of what people were saying about their reasons for eating. And that health has come back over the last few months to actually beyond pre-COVID levels now. So people are, are taking health more seriously. And it's a more holistic health as well.
0: It's so interesting. And actually, I think when we go to uh, get to talk about the first article, we'll probably get an opportunity to continue on, on some of these themes because the first piece that I was really keen to talk to you about is from The Guardian, um, and it's um, the headline, Britain's cut meat-eating by 17% but must double that to hit target. When I saw that headline, I immediately thought I want to talk to you about this because <laughs> this felt like it would be right up your street. And obviously, with your background in in a you know, doing a lot of work with the the meat industry, but now also having that holistic view of the consumer. um, I think it'd be great to get your your take on that. Just for context for listeners, so that 17% figure comes from a study that was recently published in the journal Lancet Planetary Health, which analysed meat consumption over the past decade. So we're looking at a, a longer time frame than what we've just been talking about here. And it's based on data from the National Diet and Nutrition Survey. And based on that analysis, the researchers concluded that over the past 10 years, Brits have essentially reduced their meat consumption from an average of 103 grams per person per day to 86 grams, which is where you get that 17% reduction from. And as you've already said, meat consumption, reduction in meat consumption, the growth of plant-based, these are all super, super high-profile topics at the moment. So I was very interested to understand to what extent you were seeing the same trends in your data. When you saw that 17% figure, what was your initial reaction?
1: I, I must admit, being a researcher at heart, my first reaction was like, oh, I wonder where the source of this was and how it works, um, which is terrible, really. Um, my second reaction was, I- I'm not entirely sure we've seen that level of meat production personally. The devil's in the detail and all of these things. So in terms of red meat, there has been a reduction. I think the important thing that comes through for me is there's definitely been some reduction in red meat and specifically in certain occasions. So we've seen things like the Sunday roast really drop away in the long term. So those areas we've seen volume come out of the market over the long term. But when you add in things like fish and chicken consumption you see a slightly different picture um i i would say that there has been a drop in meat consumption but not to the level we're seeing here um and i think that's probably driven by you probably need to look at a broader meat consumption as well um so we quite often talk about primary so your raw meat that you have to cook put in a sauce or put with meat and potatoes, or Those kind of dishes are are, are what people normally talk about. But over the long term, and when we talk decades, you see the rise of things like ready meals, pizzas um, and other more convenient foods which contain meat, but aren't effectively 100% meat. So we may see actually a decline in consumption, but it's not as conscious as people perhaps think It's more there's movement into these other markets. So a lot of the things we've talked about over the years are around cuisines and dishes and people being more adventurous with how they cook, moving away from meat and two potatoes effectively to, I don't know, a curry to a stir fry, those kind of things. And that drives necessarily less meat consumption because it's a section of a dish rather than the focus of the dish. So there is an element there that, yes, In some areas, we have seen that go down. But I think in many cases, it's not as conscious a decision as we think. It's not all about reducing the amount of meat we take in.
0: I think that's such an interesting point you raise there, because I suppose, yes, that's where you could get your reduction in terms of grams consumed Mm -hmm. per person per day. But as you say, it's not a conscious decision to say, I don't want to eat meat for dinner or for lunch, it's just that I'm choosing a a recipe, I'm choosing a dish that naturally doesn't contain the same weight um, of of meat as a a different dish. I feel like this is an area that can feel really confusing for people who are observing the market, because it does feel like we're seeing lots of contradictory headlines about meat consumption and about plant-based. So there's lots of buzz around plant-based. We've just had the announcement of the new McPlant burger from McDonald's this Mm -hmm. week. I think there was a survey recently claiming 20% of UK children are vegan or want to be vegan. And then, you know, you look at, at some of the big yearly reports from publications like The Grocer and you see meat products were some of the fastest growing products in all of grocery in 2020. And I think people look at that in combination and go, how can that all be true at the same time? are we somewhere massively overplaying some of these trends or are we misinterpreting them? Why do you think we are seeing such contradictory messages around the growth of plant-based, around what's happening with meat consumption, and how should we make sense of them?
1: I think it's a simple question of scale to start off with. So plant-based and meat substitutes within that have grown massively over the last few years. Um, they've gone into different markets, different formats. There's been real innovation there. And they've had a lot of support um, in the media from retailers to do that and um, and the marketing of them has been really strong. I think what we're seeing as well is they're quality products as well that people want to eat, and that's probably the biggest driver of the growth is they've got more space in store, more mental availability but also more physical availability and the products are across a lot of markets for a lot of things you can have a slice cooked meat replacement uh, meal replacement or you could go all the way through to a plant-based beef um, substitute and everything in between um, I even saw some uh, vegan ribs the other day um, which as you say I went down the aisle and could not resist buying. Um, just to test them and they were pretty good um, to be honest um, and I think that's the big thing so there are good products within there and they've shown really strong growth over the last five years what we've also seen at the same time is that meat has held its own so it's declining in terms of share in that market as plant base increases but it's still very strong so it still has a huge penetration of our, our daily diets um and i think that's the issue is the scale of decline is always going to be dwarfed by the percentage growth you see from plant-based so if we say and this is a made-up figure but say we see a three percent decline in meat that would equate to like a 200 percent growth in plant-based almost it, it is confusing and you see these really contradictory areas within there the, the most interesting thing is for us uh, and using the data I work with as an example is you start to see people using food in a different way. So when you're talking about the focus of a dish, if you're having a curry, the meat or meat substitute is an element of that dish. It doesn't exactly matter what that is. And people may choose to go, do you know what? It's a very strong spicy sauce. Do I need something that is um, a strong lamb flavour? Or does it have a substitute that would go in just as well? Or could I be putting just vegetables in it? And I think that's one of the choices we see as well. So people are actually getting the health message on five a day as well. has helped drive meat reduction. People having just vegetables with things.
0: I also think it's it's sort of worth stressing that... I still see quite a bit of this debate about meat consumption being framed around people going vegan, which I think is really a a red herring because it's not people turning away from meat completely, it's often uh, meat eaters who are simply moderating or reducing their meat consumption, so they'll never turn up in your statistics about people who've gone vegan, but they may still in real terms have reduced um, the amount of meat that they that. That they're consuming. From your perspective, how much of this meat reduction is actually driven by people who are flexitarians or meat reducers as opposed to those going completely plant based or vegan?
1: I, I think what we see is it's generally the bulk of the population that are driving the movement. I, I think the whole vegan side of things is actually really hard to do. Um, it, it's very much a lifestyle choice and. It's finding the right products to fit that choice. I think it's much easier for people to reduce rather than completely cut aim. So we we see from our data that people that define themselves as flexitarians are driving it. But also what um, has been termed unconscious reducers. So people that are generally meat eaters, they're not identifying with flexitarianism. They're not trying to go vegan they're not trying to go veggie they're just eating less meat and that is where the dish choices come in and where it's less of a direct i am leaving this category it's more i might instead of having meat five days a week i might have it four and have something else just as tasty at a different point in the the week Um, and that's where we we've seen a lot of that um there's actually some really good studies out there uh, on, on that, which we've seen from various people that are putting some uh, almost quantification on that to say who exactly is driving it. And, and in all of those cases, it's generally the masses are, are driving uh, a meat reduction because it can't be a small group when 90% of people are consuming. It, it, it has to be that large group to have a large scale effect.
0: Absolutely. I'm interested in what you're saying about unconscious meat reducers, though. How would you suggest the meat industry respond to that and capture them? Because I guess quite a lot of the messaging we've seen from the meat industry recently has been to try and respond to some of the particularly environmental concerns around meat consumption. And I guess that's then targeted at people who are conscious meat reducers is saying i'm concerned about the sustainability impact tell me you know what you're doing to make this a more sustainable choice if as a consumer i'm not even aware that i'm cutting back and i'm not ideologically motivated how do you in the meat industry recapture these people and uh, get them excited about meat again
1: i i think it's it's really tough because it's all about influencing people at the point of purchase and influencing people before that point so It's being mentally available. So getting the need for those products early within there. And I think that is about good experiences. And I do think a lot of talking about the environmental side of things, the health benefits, holistically helps. And there are lots of positives for the UK industry compared to other countries' industries that perhaps are, are things that can be pushed harder to talk about. I think in store, it's all about the communication and giving people options and inspiration. Um, it's really hard to sort of see what to do with some products and people lack experience and have small repertoires of what they cook. So giving them that support and, and that in-depth sort of expertise that the industry has, it is great. So we've seen some great examples over the years of retailers Trying this. So a good example actually would be some of the Tesco food love stories that were a couple of years ago. They're great examples of um above the line and then in-store activation or something. So you'd see things like um the, the young man getting his father to date again and getting him to cook steaks. And when you went in store, you'd see that you see the whole meal there, all of the items within it on an end. Um, some of them perhaps on promotion, all these things helping people to go, yeah, I can do this and I can buy into those products. And what we did see was there was some very short-term strong uplifts within those areas. And I think it was a very successful um, creative for driving some of those behaviours. But it's hard to constantly do that because one of the things we know is that people do very easily transfer back to the old favourites and stick with what they know.
0: I suppose we also hear a lot about this less but better mantra, particularly mm. in the context of meat consumption. Are you seeing any evidence in your data that people are starting to make that switch, that they are thinking about choosing better meat? And are you getting any indications of what consumers actually think might make meat better?
1: I think that's a really hard subject. Um For our data what we have seen over time is people have traded up within the markets but it's really hard to say whether that is about premium quality or whether that's about a perception of premiumization that it will be tastier it will be uh, of a higher quality so we we We've not been able to pull that apart very easily, to be honest. I think some of the claims are actually really hard for consumers. I think it's simplifying some of those areas. So um, a great example, which I've I've talked about before, is something like when you talk about pork, um, the message of outdoor bred or outdoor reared, which unless you really understand the new Of it and get it explained is a really hard concept for a consumer who's spending a few seconds at a fixture to go, is that important? Isn't that? So I think one of the big things that we've talked about in the past is making it really simple and really clear what the better quality things are and why. Um, And there's a lot of things from uh, accreditation schemes all the way through to um, one of the other articles I was looking at when preparing for this was around actually getting green um, labelling to, to say what green credentials products have. All of those things fit within that quality, better, better for you, better for the environment. Um, and I think it's really difficult because there are mixed messages across it as well. So often people default to um, are the premium products that are the best products to go to. And those will be the ones that have the quality. And in some cases, that might be just the way that they've been defined uh, or the way that they've been sourced. So better quality isn't always the thing that they're calling out. They're, they're almost shortcutting cutting to premium as a byline for quality.
0: Got it. And obviously, we're, we're now starting to see those Foundation Earth eco labels starting to make their way into the market. So I think it'll be really mm-hmm. interesting to see how that ultimately ends up affecting consumer choices. Now, I do want to bring you on to your next article. We're staying with meat, poultry. Specifically, Um, but we're going to talk about Christmas turkeys because, of course, we are. Um, And this article um, is also from the Guardian. The headline is "Frozen turkeys in high demand as Christmas shopping starts early." This will be a very familiar story for to listeners. Um, It's of course in the context of concerns over the supply chain crisis and labour shortages. We've heard from poultry producers warning that there may not be enough turkeys this Christmas, there have been similar warnings about pigs and blankets and so many shoppers have been put on high alert and have started to stock up now. This particular piece quotes Aldi and they're saying they're currently selling 1,500 turkey crowns a day which is four times the usual rate for this time of year and of course other Christmas specific items that other retailers are also flying off the shelves already. Nathan I was really intrigued to see you pick this article, it's obviously highly topical but I wondered to what extent that sort of stocking up early was already coming through in your data um, and what you felt were the key points we should be taking from it.
1: Mm. I, I think this is a really interesting one because we've been talking a lot about what sort of Christmas we're going to have this year. Um, and I, I think it's the hardest one that we've had for a long time to, to forecast. Uh, and there's there's almost two schools of thought um, on it in our business and, and actually within our clients is that we've talked about the sort of roaring 20s where people are coming back and trying to really have a blowout for Christmas. And I think that is one thing we might see. But there's also a sort of subplot on that of, actually, we're probably in the most polarised economic position we've been for a long time. So there'll be some people that are really struggling at Christmas and finding it quite difficult. So we're expecting to see almost uh, that polarisation come through in how people shop. So those people that have more disposable income, we wouldn't be surprised if they follow pretty much what we saw in 2019. Mm-hmm. So the Christmas day and Christmas period aligns to a similar part of the week, so around the weekend. So we expect late shopping, people buying a lot of the fresh products, getting them delivered to store for Christmas Eve or the day before, and really buying that sort of party atmosphere that people have been looking for, and we expect to see gathering sizes go up as people are able to invite people over this Christmas and able to do that a lot more. The flip side is those people that are harder pushed. Um, and that's a significant proportion of the population at the moment. They might find it a lot harder, and I think that's one of the interesting things about this article. Is frozen has always been a shorthand for either convenience or for lower prices um we expect to see actually some people also taking advantage of the fact that there may be a crisis in in actual delivery and um demand outstripping supply of these products so some people getting in early on those products um i I thought it was really interesting seeing as well the flip side of waitrose seeing their um fresh ordering going through the roof and being significantly above as well. So it's kind of showing that polarisation coming through as we see people getting their premium turkeys, but also at the same time buying the frozen ones to make sure that they've got that in stock now before supply problems hit. And I I think that was the interesting part of the article for me is it's it's almost a mixture of multiple things. People are worried about the economy and what they're going to have at Christmas to spend. But at the same time, there's people worried about there actually not being turkeys and this not being the special Christmas that they want, not being that big celebratory blowout that people have been looking forward to. I think it's really important for us to keep our eyes and ears to the ground on what's happening for this. And one of the things we've already started to see is people are starting to think about Christmas earlier than, than perhaps normal. And it's true when you go in store, the the Christmas things are almost already out in some places. It used to be that the seasonal aisle didn't get filled until Halloween had gone, but we're already seeing <laughs> Christmas aisles starting to, to to come out and a lot of things in store already for Christmas. So I I think the retailers are preparing early as well. And, it's, it's the classic cycle of if there's a physical availability, the sales do come as well. So once it's in store, we start to see that. It, it's the classic uh, Cadbury's cream egg surging gen.
0: And I think Turkey is such an interesting example because it is the Christmas meat in this country. Do you think these shortages or concerns about shortages that shoppers are, are being told about will encourage some people to experiment with other meats this Christmas?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's always an interesting one because one of the things we, we always say is that turkey is never as big as people think. So everyone thinks that everyone buys it, but actually only about a fifth to a quarter of the population buy a turkey at Christmas, and that's because many people entertain. I, I think the big thing we see is actually around that, and, and we, we've talked about it a lot, is the weeks running up to Christmas are really important for the industry as a whole on driving those other products into people's repertoires and into people's consideration. I think with Turkey, it it will always hold a special place and it is the centrepiece of those meals. And we do see a real strength in the category. And despite a lot of activity, it's pretty much immovable in that level. But there are people that are trying different things. And retailer innovation is really strong in this area every year. Um, I, I never cease to be amazed by the quality of the innovation around Christmas. And you see things like um, really good other poultry. So things like duck, things like goose coming out and really good products within those. You see some great red meat centerpieces um, and different ways of, of having things. But it. it doesn't always take that much out of the turkey side of things, but these products are important and sell really well.
0: Now, the final article brings us to prices. Now this article that you have chosen um, in this context is from the BBC and the headline is Kraft Heinz says people must get used to higher food prices and of course it's not just Kraft Heinz who says that there have been lots of brand owners warning about this recently, PepsiCo is one of them and actually just before we went on air I got an alert from Two Sisters Food Group very big poultry supply among other things and their owner Ranjit Singh Baparan has just put out a pretty punchy statement warning about higher food prices and I thought just for listeners um, I'll just read a paragraph of, from that which I think gives a, gives a taste of how suppliers are talking about this at the moment. So here's the quote from Ranjit. The days when you could feed a family of four with a three pound chicken are coming to an end. We need transparent, honest pricing. This is a reset and we need to spell out what this will mean. Food is too cheap, there's no point avoiding the issue. In relative terms, a chicken today is cheaper to buy than it was 20 years ago. How can it be right that a whole chicken costs less than a pint of beer? You're looking at a different world from now on where the shopper pays more. So fairly punchy messaging, um, the messaging from Kraft Heinz was also fairly clear in in saying that. What do you take from that? Why are suppliers um, not just looking to push through price increases, but why are they going public and really putting it out there that we need to have a reset on food pricing?
1: I think it's a really, really tough situation for some of these um, producers with the cost of manufacturing going up significantly and it becoming harder and harder to pass that on um, with pricing as it is. So I I think one of the interesting things where uh, the article that I shared was talking about was actually the raw materials have become significantly more expensive getting them into this country and getting them into the products has become more expensive. And then also getting those products from factory to store is more expensive. And it's it's become a huge burden, I think, for manufacturers. And, and even something as simple as getting chilled products from A to B isn't just about driving a truck somewhere. It's about making sure you have CO2 gas It's making sure you have that gas to be able to make uh, the product in a sealed environment so it lasts longer. All of these interconnected things are things that probably the consumer doesn't know or or understand. I mean, I only understand these things because I work in the industry and I hear it all the time. All of these things going up means something's got to give. And I think in the past, one of the things that's happened on that is – we we've seen products shrink in size. We've seen the, the classic term shrinkflation, mm-hmm. where got smaller. There's less in a pack, um, or there's new packs to hit price points. I think all of those things will continue to happen. But there's almost become a point where these suppliers are at a tipping point of saying we can't profitably deliver these products without significant price rises and no one wants to hear about price rises particularly at a time when we're all constrained um and things are tight for a lot of people in the country so I, I think going public with it is something that they're almost having to do so it doesn't feel that they're the bad guys but also the retailers that they're with it's not making the retailer the bad guy it's being really transparent and saying prices have gone up because costs have gone up it's it, It's not to do with us trying to make huge profits. It's not with the retailers trying to make profits. It is because the bottom line has changed. And I think um, the statement from Two Sisters underlines that to say it's cheaper relatively to buy a chicken now than it was 20 years ago. It seems almost a mixture of, well, we might expect that with efficiencies and technology. But actually, when you look behind the scenes... There's probably not that much efficiency in technology changes that has been made over that time to facilitate that level of change. We've been keeping prices low and something does have to change. And I think it's taken a huge event and things off the back of the, at that huge event to really put into place a position where actually these price increases are having to be made. So it's a really tough position because I think, I, I mean, I've worked in the industry for 20 years, and in a lot of markets, we've just seen prices drop consistently. There's not been a huge amount of markets where prices rise on like for like products. Where things have grown, it's been through premiumization, through getting it into a different occasion, giving people a different delivery method. Um, what we haven't seen is actually the basic prices of the standard things significantly increase. It will have happened in some markets, but not everywhere.
0: And it's so interesting, I think, also in terms of what this means um, for the power dynamics in UK grocery retail specifically. I mean, going back to the previous article we talked about, you know, which creates um, Aldi. Um, UK boss Giles Hurley talking about frozen turkey crowns but also you know he has gone on record saying actually it's business as usual at Aldi Um, you know other people may have struggled with some of the, the the supply chain issues but actually Aldi's business model means they've been able to to deal with that that is you know there's a message contained therein isn't there to to the big four in terms of the kind of pressure they can expect from the discounters from a discounter like Aldi in terms of price competition it's a tough spot to be in if you are a major supermarket, isn't it? When on the one hand, you've got your suppliers going public and, you know, Kraft Heinz is is saying this not just about the UK, but saying it's a global issue. It's happening in lots of territories. Something needs to give. You've got that punchy statement from, from Ranjit at Two Sisters. And then on the other hand, you've got the, the discounters waiting in the wing, trying to kind of redo, a you know, what they did in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. What is are your expectations of how the retailers, the big four, are going to try and navigate that?
1: Yeah, it, it's really hard for, for retailers, I, I think. And what I expect to happen is that every one of the big four will have a different way of approaching it. So they've all got different challenges and different things going on with their businesses at the moment. Um, so with some of them having takeovers, some of them actually – being taken over and and looking at a different model. All of these things will be going on and they'll be looking how they can do that and what they can do. We know in the past recessions that we've seen, um, retailers have have really looked to help their customers um, through helping them trade down, helping them through promotions, all of these kind of areas. So I'd expect some of that to come through. Um, What we found very much is the 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 discounters growth um came through in the years after the the recession because these behaviors last a long time at the same time there was a huge expansion of those retailers in terms of the number of stores as well we know that's continuing as well so there's definitely going to be a battle in that area coming up and i think it's every everyone will have a different route to try and navigate through that um and I think the interesting thing for us um, as a business working with suppliers and retailers alike is really helping inform what their customers want, what their consumers want, and how everyone can do it their own way and what is their way of approaching these things. As you say, there will be huge competition, but we, we know from history that all of these retailers find ways to work with those trends and really try and continue to build a relationship with their customers, drive loyalty, keep people in store. And I I think we'll see more innovative ways of doing that and more things coming that that are there to really protect their position and help them grow um, within their areas.
0: Fantastic. Nathan, we're out of time. But if listeners want to connect with you, um, where's the best way to find you?
1: Yeah, um, I'm always on LinkedIn. uh, So anyone can can contact me there or through um, our World Panel website or through me directly. Um, So my address would be uh, nathanward at kantar.com. If anyone wants to get in touch, I'm more than happy to answer any questions.
0: Fantastic. Nathan, thank you so much for being my guest.
1: No problem. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was great to talk.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Pick List a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter, at juliaglotscom forward slash newsletter. See you next time.